makeshift upper gallery, infirmary, Hollyberry, Nasturtum, Thruggan, and Abbess Vale are hard at work tending sick creatures. Nasturtium warns Hollyberry she's using up the last of the mugwort and lemon verbena. Thruggan says not to worry about that. She'll pop into Mossflower and get some more. Hollyberry asks her to get a few more things and keep an eye out for Dumble while she's out there. She says not to worry about that either. She's certain he's with her brother. A Dibbon Mole confirms that yes, Dumble is with Thrug. He told him he'd go and bring back the flower for them all. And small side note, it's like, you know what? Thank you, Brian. Because, um, like, Brian, he's actually, like, relieving the stress. Like, the abbess would have worried about this. This would have been, like, another worry added to the poor abbess's shoulders. But instead, Brian goes, you know what? No, she's got enough to worry about with the fever. Let this worry just be changed from we don't know where he is to, like, we're still a little worried about him, but he's with an adult, so we know that he's safe. And, like... I know that there have been only a, like only a few, but there's been some books or book series that I have stopped reading because the main characters never get a break. You, they just keep yeah. piling it on and piling it on and piling it on until it's like this person should logically just be broken and not be able to do anything. Yeah. When you get that level of like frantic pacing and energy and tension in a book, it can be exhausting to read. Mm hmm. So it's like, it's nice that it's like, okay, no, we have confirmation. Dumble is with somebody, air quotes, responsible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who will keep him <laughs> safe. Uh, we don't have to worry about Dumble, hopefully. Mm. Uh, so we can just focus on what's directly in front of us. Mm -hmm. He's scolded for not alerting the adults right away, but is forgiven just as quickly when he says he'd been sick as an old frog. With one more helper down, Hollyberry and the Abbess can only place their hope on the unlikely pair of Thrug and Dumble. Help me, Thrug and Dumble. You're my only hope. Help me, Hopey John, wherever you are. You're help my me. only hope. Hopey John, whoever the fuck. <laughs> my dad's actually out watching Star Wars right now. I can faintly hear the music. <laughs> he'll, he'll, like, pick a weekend and then go through all nine movies. And then some of the supplementary ones, too, if he feels like it. Um, Lord. Said unlikely pair is having a jolly good time marching down the road, singing verses back and forth and enjoying food, until Dumble happens to glance back and see four foxes sneaking after them. And do you want to do a little call and response back and forth? Uh, I don't actually want to do the musical bit. Okay. So you uh, want me to skip reading it? Yeah. Okay. It's Basically, just a really cute thing where yeah. they're just making up verses. Yeah. So, let's see. It's four raggedy beggar foxes who pilfer or beg when they can from travelers along the road. What travelers? Who uses this road, <laughs> Brian? We never hear about trading caravans or other people just walking along here. Why do they use the road, Brian? Where are they traveling to? Where are the other settlements, Brian? Who uses the road? Okay, and now I have to make a joke because they start talking to them and I have to make a joke, okay? I'm gonna lean back from the microphone. Okay. Top of the summer to ya! <laughs> <laughs> Did 
said no. Discord said absolutely not. My audacity picked up on it. All I heard was. Yeah. I had to make the Jacksepticeye joke. I'm sorry. Thrug is all ready to fight them until he remembers he has Dumble on his shoulders. So he turns and runs into the woods instead of fighting as he would do otherwise. The foxes spread out to look for them, and one named Ringworm, why did your parents hate you? All of their names are terrible, just all of them. Spots Dumble and the haversack in a nearby brush. Bush. The four sneak close and crept to pounce, but get pounced on instead, knocked cold by Thrug. Dumble is more than happy to see the biffed foxes. Thrug gets a stout willow switch and whips the foxes awake, saying it's time to march. And it's like considering one of them out and out says that like they they have eaten roasted dormice before. It's like this is justified, I'd say. This is one of the situations where it's like, no, they're definitely justified in treating these guys like crap. Um, because like a snake a snake I'd be willing to give a pass. That's an obligate carnivore who's got a different lifestyle and a different mentality. But like, we're getting into Beastars Terry of fridge horror here when you think about woodlanders being cooked and eaten like actual mammalian woodlanders because like the birds get eaten and we know the birds can talk too. Yeah, it's... It's a weird line that Brian toes in these books with it because we don't ever really get that kind of like, uh, like food tree like level of like predation explained. Yeah. At any point, um, because it's assumed that like any of the the vermin creatures, any any creature can just survive on fish and plants, right, or uh, insects. Or insects, like they can survive on anything that's not red meat. Mm-hmm. But then you get, but no, they eat, you know, woodlanders sometimes. Sometimes, just as a treat, I guess. Yeah, it's like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, why? <laughs> why are we cooking and roasting people? Um. Uh, to show that this creature's obviously evil, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Like, sorry for being starving and not having any place to live or farm or anything. Um, the four are forced to carry Dumble on their shoulders at double speed, even over the pike-filled ford, which, hey, nice call back there. Um, no bird, only pikes. <laughs> footsore and tired, literally footsore, one claiming to have been bitten by a pike, they beg and plead foot to be sore let go. Or paw sore. Ah, hmm. Well, they do. <laughs> they do call them foot pads sometimes. Yeah, they've got paws. They've got paws. He um, called it his. Uh, uh, Dingy called it his foot paw. That's true. Um, Thrug decides that it's time. He does let Dumble force the foxes to make promises to be good, help others, and never steal again. They he do. makes each of the foxes repeat these lines verbatim back uh-huh. to him. It is adorable, but it's also like, this feels morally dubious. 
yeah, because like these creatures have obviously killed people before and now you're letting them go. And what's going to happen is, is they're going to run into the woods, lick their wounds and be even angrier now and actually hold a grudge. Yeah. Um, well, it's also teaching Dumble not great lessons. Yeah. Like, I don't so, know. I, I feel like this is just morally. Eh. I don't know. Again, like they directly stated they wanted to eat Dumble. So in this case, it's like, you know, I think this is okay. Like, is it? I mean, <sighs> is it okay to pluck out another man's eye? Oh, you know, good point. Uh, I mean, they're not actually... You're supposed to be the one with the Christian allegories well, over here. Well, what I was going to say is, though, they're not physically hurting them. Uh, they, well, they made them march. Uh, uh, the the willow switch? That's true. But, I mean, even in the Bible, people who are thieves or murderers do get punishment. You turn the other cheek to someone who has a chance to learn and be better. If someone clearly has no intention to be better, you defend yourself. Like, the Bible does have stipulations where you are allowed to defend yourself. Of course, this the, I, behavior, I feel again, like, to a degree, this is less defending themselves and Thrug, like... Allowing Dumble to be a little bit of a bully back. Yeah, and Thrug yeah. also being a little bit of a bully. Like, the punishment far yeah. outweighed the crime in yeah, this case. Yeah, because with the lines, pro with the promises made and the lines repeated, Thrug preps his sling... They've got until 10, and then he'll be after them to work as porters tomorrow. He doesn't even get to 7 before they're rapidly fading from view. Like, I don't, I don't know. It feels bad. It does. Like, I know it's supposed to be played for comedic effect, but this is one of those, like, a lot of the instances with Thrug and Dumble here have been very tonally whiplashy. Yeah. There's a gnat that keeps buzzing in front of my microphone. Would you go away? It says, no, I want to talk about Redwall. Bah. I'm not an insectivore. Bug off. You could be if you tried hard enough. I don't want to be. <laughs> I like red meat, not bug meat. <laughs> you never ate the, like, flavored dried crickets that they would sell? Absolutely not. <laughs> never. <laughs> The, you the, eat the, the, the cheese flavored ones? No. Or the ranch one? No. Why not? The, the textural nightmare of that. Of all the little buggy legs. Of the buggy legs and then the squishy abdomen, even if They're it's dried, dried out. They're dried. There's no I don't squish. Care. My brain knows it should be. It's just crunchy. No. They don't taste fantastic, so like. Yeah. <laughs> you're not missing anything. The parent don't camp that night. No. <laughs> like, if it's ground, like, it's a case of, like, if it's ground into something for extra protein, just don't tell me it's in there. <laughs> don't tell me it's in there and I'll be okay. The minute you tell me what it is, I won't be able to eat it anymore. So, the pair camp that night under the otter and his wife, Stones. Dumble promises to take care of Thrug, who is amused by the valiant little Dibbon. They sleep peacefully. And it's like, yay, another little callback. It's like they're following that northern road, but like past here, we're going to start seeing different scenery because here is where, you know, they turned off and started going their own way. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah. I'm, well, I'm they, wondering, but... this is like the second, this is the second time the otter and his wife have popped up. And I'm wondering like, 
if they're going to come up again in other books because I don't remember them. I mean, they probably will just as like markers and background things because like if they are a marker along the North Road, it makes sense that they'd be like, oh, hey, it's it's the otter and the wife, you know, like we know these guys, so... We return to the Guasam, who travel through a maze of waterways, lulled by the voyage and the quiet day. Mara drifts off to sleep on the prow of one of the log canoes, and I love the way he describes the imagery, the scenery here. Yeah, they're like going through, like there's willow trees, like uh, grown, like they're going through like a tunnel of willow branches, and just there's the like buzzing of insects, the light like dappled through the leaves and shit. It's just. It's good shit. It reminds me of canal trips that I used to take in my old hometown. <laughs> they arrive at evening to the Gua Sam home, just in time for dinner. Pickle, of course, is delighted. I swear to God, if I get one more hair in another book calling Logalog old Laga thing, I'm going to burn something. <laughs> Why can't the hairs just say people's names properly? Uh, not that people's names are often any better, seeing as a fat shrew named Tubgut and his two thin lackeys try to bully Mara and Pickle away from the table. But Logalog and Nordo chase them off with a stern word and a strong stance. Like, that has to be a name he either chose for himself or was given later in life. There's no way they would look at their, like, a mum would look at their baby and go, Your name is Tubgut because you have a fat baby belly. I mean... I mean, but, but like, baby bellies are supposed to be, like, cute and round and Well, maybe Tubgut's a normal name. Maybe. I say as if Logalog's son isn't named Nordo. Uh-huh. Fucking Ikea furniture ass. <laughs> Tubgut and his lackeys grumble off to their own side of the table, trading mean words and chuckles once they get there. They enjoy their food greatly. Logalog is impressed by Pickle's ability to tuck away food. Pickle boasts that scuffing is his favorite thing, and Tubgut takes offense, saying no rabbit can put away food, only a shrew can. Ah, but Pickle is no rabbit. He is a salamander strong hare. It sets off Pickle's thin but what? It sets off Tubgut's thin temper, saying he can't be out scoffed. Pickle asks Logalog permission for an eating competition, and Logalog gives it, warning Pickle that Tubgut is sly and has hardly touched any food. Pickle's not bothered. He's just had a warm-up scoff, after all. Ah, uh, yes. The thing is... The one character trait he's allowed to have. Yeah, and the thing is, is, those of us who are reading this, if this is not the first time you're reading a Redwall book, then you know that hares could just keep eating and eating. If a hare had been at Redwall when Dinjai and Thura were just stuffing themselves, the yeah. hare would have still been there, too. Totally mm -hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, at this point, I have a theory that the hares actually are magical. <laughs> and, all the f and all the food they eat is burned away, just providing that magical energy. They're warforged. It has to go into their engines. Because otherwise there is no physical way they could actually eat this well, much food. Aren't hares one of those creatures that have to eat, like, over their body weight in food? I don't think so. Not daily. They wouldn't... That'd be a lot of food. Mm. But even then... Even then, Izzy, like, there is an upward limit to how much a stomach can physically hold. Like, you, you know, 
You can like eating as much as you want, but after a while, your stomach literally can't hold anymore. Grass, go in fast, come out. Uh, Pickle just like, let's, oh no, I'm not going to finish that sentence. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what were you about to say? No. Why? An old oaks, no. An old <laughs> oak stump table is set up for the pair. It's apple sliced pudding that's to be scoffed. Uh, apple. Now you got me all flustered again. An old oak stump table is set up for the pair. It's apple spiced pudding that's to be scoffed. And God, I want to eat this so bad. Same. Um, anything apples and spices, I will go feral for. Especially like now that it's getting to be fall and it's just like, yes. gimme, 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 gimme. Like, like I've got a wax melt in my room um, and like three out of the six cents that I've hoarded are apple related in some way or the other <laughs> or cinnamon. Um They'll be counting empty dishes. Half empty dishes don't count and no hiding food in clothes or on the floor. Keep it clean and fair. The one unable to lift paw to eat is the first to lose. Which is like, why are you counting dishes then? Um, the cook lifts, no, I'm sorry. Logalog lifts his paw and drops it, starting the contest. And I've grumbled before about Brian's tangents, but in this book, I'm actually a little grateful for them because like if we were lingering on Salamandastron and the Abbey, both very tense, very dark situations, this book wouldn't be nearly as enjoyable to read because you would like, I'd be start, I'd start getting tense too. Like I'd be too empathetic with the characters who are sick or worried or hurt. And like this eating contest, these little breakaways to the logalog and Mara and all this, it's a good sort of balance to the stress. And I could see kids who are reading this book or having the book read to them, like really enjoying this. It's a, a goofy contest. You could make lots of silly noises while you're reading this out to kids or make really goofy voices. And I can see, I like this. It's good. Mm -hmm. Tubgut gets a good lead, worrying Logalog a little. Mara comforts him, saying Pickle is going slower simply because he's savoring the meal. He can pack it away with the biggest of them. He's enjoying it indeed, taking time to take drinks and poke fun at Tubgut, twisting his name into even more insulting nicknames. And, like, this little bit, like, this is where I was going to come in with some of my Christian allegories slash thoughts, is like, the difference between like gluttony and just like enjoying your food, like Pickle is taking time to savor it. He's appreciating the work that's gone into making this. And, you know, Tubgut's just shoving it into his mouth. He's not even like, he's eating for the sake of eating. And I like that Brian is pointing out that that matters. It matters whether you're actually enjoying what you're eating or just eating to eat. It's good. And good job on Pickle, honestly, because Tubgut is just fucking rude the entire uh -huh. time. Because he teases Tubgut for his messy eating, and the shrews or the shrew shoots back that the hare will regret challenging him. Though on his eighth plate he does start to slow down. It's like, what do you think's gonna happen if he loses Tubgut? Like, you're not gonna get control of the Guasam through an eating contest. No, it's a pride um, thing, don't you know? Yeah. It's a dick measuring contest. Don't you know? I'm um, gonna fucking fight you. I'm doing don't you know like the fucking hares do. Hey, <laughs> but I got Minnesotan heritage, alright? I'm allowed. Um Sure. 
pickle sure won't, not with such good food to eat. His upbeat manner and impeccable table manners start to sway the shrews to Pickle's side. By Tubgut's twelfth bowl, he can't eat anymore. His paw drops and he flops into the pudding. Now that he's defeated, Pickle stops holding back, going up to 16 bowls before the cook calls a halt and declares him the champion. Like, the cook lifts his paw in the air. And Pickle tries to pull it back down, complaining that it's rude to stop a chat. Miss Scott, mid-scoff. He's like, hey, hey, let go. I want to keep eating. I want to keep eating. Let me keep eating. Yeah. Um, like, I just, oh. like, I remember before complaining about, oh, we should put overeating as a warning for this. Oh, well. Um, it's got hairs it, in it. I think it's. Yeah. <laughs> Goes without saying. But, like, my thought of this just, it makes me feel so sick. Like, you know, when you eat too much, like, just, oh. I just, yeah. I, I actually feel, it's just, ow. Ow, ow, ow. So, <laughs> while Pickle sleeps off his gluttony, Mara asks Logalog, why can't she go home? He says, all in due time. He and the weasels are old enemies and have fought many times, but first Mara must help them. He leads only with his strength. He should have an artifact called the Blackstone. All one word, Blackstone. But Nordo, as a baby, had lost it. Without it, his right to lead is constantly challenged. Because, like, Logalog covers for his son. Like, I told him I lost it, not Nordo, so Nordo wouldn't get in trouble. And Nordo explains his side of it. How he drifted off while in a little log boat made just for him. Drifting for two days around a huge lake. The oars were, like, lost and everything, so he could only drift. Yeah, He'd finally landed on an island and spent a day searching for suitable wood to make oars for his little boat. He had no success. Tired, he'd fallen asleep that night to be awoken by a roar and a great white shape. It was holding the Blackstone. He fled in terror, once again drifting until his father found him. Like, he just jumps in the boat and goes, nope, no, 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 no. Because remember, he baby. He baby baby in this flashback. Wait a baby. So Mara asks, why does this require her help? What's she supposed to do against a ghost? Because, Nordo explains, the great white ghost was a badger. A white badger with no stripes. And it's like, yes! Give us that payoff, Brian! Ha ha! It's fucking good. It's fucking good. It's fucking good. He's connecting the plot. Points. He's connecting the plot. Points. <laughs> fucking Ryan from fucking uh, BuzzFeed Unsolved. I am connecting the dots. You are connecting connected shit. shit. I am connecting them. <laughs> in Moss Flower, Sam Kim and Arula see that the mud does indeed remove and soothe the stings. They notice Sprigget is gone, but aren't too worried. Sam Kim figures he can handle himself. And he agrees, arriving just as Sam Kim says that. He drops their supply sacks and cheerfully proclaims himself full after feasting on the shattered wasp's nest. Which, to like, to an insectivore, wasp larva, ooh man, that was a good yeah. feast. This hedgehog is living good right now. It's fucking good shit. They pay him back with a little October ale, which he greatly likes, and he takes them off to find the track of the track of Dinjai. And just like, like... Brian, why are the hedgehogs all, like, borderline alcoholics? (laughs) 
He's a master woodsman and the kids watch him work with admiration. He's also happy to teach them what he's learned. He finds a safe place for them to camp and warns them not to light a fire. He sent something he doesn't like. Literally sent something. The kids listen and after a cold dinner, doze off for a bit. They're awakened by Spriggett, who teaches them another lesson. Never sleep at the same time. Let one stay away to keep watch. Like, they like, wake up, like, startled because they uh, Spriggett snaps a twig mm-hmm. right next to them. Mm-hmm. It's very, very, it's a good teaching moment because, like, that yeah, could have so. been anything. I like Spriggett. I like yeah. him a lot. And Spriggett wouldn't have left them somewhere where, like, he knew they wouldn't have been safe. Exactly. I think, like, he's a very good mentor figure. Mm-hmm. I like Spriggett. He's given some elderberry wine, drinking it down while Samkin asks, what did he see? He'd found the dead Dinjai, as well as scenting the rats and the fox, though he wasn't sure about the fox. Samkin is offended that the sword had been used for murder and protests, which is like, kid, weren't you going to kill Dinjai? There's like, a yes, difference. the murder would be justified. But... There's a difference between using the bow and arrow, though, and Martin's sword. Martin's sword okay. isn't to be used for murder. Well, this is actually where I would bring up, like, again, like a Bible allegory where thou shalt not kill. But there's a big asterisk next to thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Technically, you're not really supposed to take revenge either. But if you're defending your home, your family or like your religion you are allowed to kill, like if it's a war scenario. Moida. And they're not in a war scenario, but Samkin isn't just going out to kill in cold blood. He's going to retrieve the sword and get uh, revenge. Which, you know, we're all for, as we have said in past books, even though that's <laughs> not very Christian of me, but... Um, but also, like, uh, Spriggett has a lesson to teach them here as well. Exactly. Because Spriggett knows better He tells Samkin that there's no magic to a sword. It lays in the hands that use it. Which, again, Brian calling back to the legend that Martin was taught. The sword isn't magic. The sword can be good or evil. It depends on who is using it. Mm -hmm. It's It's good shit. Yes. But for now, it's bedtime. Tomorrow will be a long day of tracking. That night, Sam Kim has uneasy dreams. Martin appears, encouraging him and telling him to trust Spriggan and his words, and to remember the sword can be used for good or for evil. To which I... Cheekily. It's very cheekily go, even a demon can quote the Bible? Which is true. Like, there are demons who will quote the Bible. It happens in the Bible. They try to do it to Jesus, and Jesus is like, be gone! Yep. What? Um... (laughs) Jesus did not say thought. Uh, Jesus would never <laughs> tell a thought to be gone. No, he'd be like, hey, come hang out with me. We're chill. Hey, Mary Magdalene was like his homie. Come on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> come here, thought. <laughs> that hoe over there? She my friend. Yes. Um, you thought wrong. Um, I'm gonna... No, too far. You took the joke too far. <laughs> Divorce. The morning... <laughs> the morning starts with a drizzle, but they're still able to track the vermin. Spriggan spotting a chopped up bit of mint. And Arula's little commentary is like, 
Your it be a very swingable sword is very cute. I like it. And then two rabbits pop up saying it wasn't the mint they've been chopping at. They've been rabbits. too close to their burrow. Rabbits. And these three don't have any ideas to chop rabbits, do they? Rabbits. Which actual rabbits. They exist. They're here. The rabbits. Um, they're real. They're not just a myth. <laughs> they exist. Finally. <laughs> Sam Kim says no, introduces themselves, and is generally friendly. To which he's repaid with the rabbits acting fierce, one claiming to their name is Fang Slayer, and the other is Death Eye. And then there's a little squabble over who gets to be Fang Slayer today or not. Abrula I love is the having... difference between, like, the way that the rabbits act and the way that they... Like, granted, we find out these two rabbits are very young. Yeah. Um, but it's very, very funny though that like they're acting play acting as though they're hairs mm-hmm. Arula is having none of it and threatens to tan their hides with a stout stick he gets them to wailing for their mother and she pops up she scolds them and reveals their Clarence and Clarissa and like I'm just laughing at like the Beatrix it's like oh hello Beatrix Potter has stepped in for a moment <laughs> Um, y'all go read Beatrix Potter. Her books are a delight, no matter how old you are. Honestly. Um, and you should look up, like, her, uh, herbal illustrations, because that's where she got yes. her start, and they're gorgeous. Yes. They talk back a bit and get another scolding and tweaked ears for their disobedience. Spriggett bows to her and promises they won't harm the two. And did she mention she'd seen the fox and six rats pass by? Yes, she'd seen them, nasty things. And those three, threatening to beat her babies. Did they have nothing better to do? And I was like, ah, the shrewish housewife. She's not a shrew, though. No, but she's like, this woman would definitely be on an HOA. You God. know, because like, I think she literally says, like, what is this forest coming to? This goddamn Karen with her uh-huh. children Clarence and Clarissa. <laughs> well, the fox had gone southwest. And they can tell him she'll give him what for if he ever comes back that way. And with that, she takes her offspring and hauls them off, scolding and threatening to put them to bed. Spriggett is amused and advises his two to be very wary of her tongue as they carry on. Hard cut to Salamander's drawing, <laughs> and Farago's plan has launched into motion with the coming of night. The vermin charge. Chanting, Farago, Farago, death, kill, to, kill, no, death kill, 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 kill. Etc. Etc. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know the usual, the, the usual business. Oxeye and Earthstripe are eating dinner when they hear the commotion. Oxeye is just annoyed, asking if they should just ignore them and let the Rim Defenders shake off the attack. But Earthstripe won't pass up a chance to fight and plans a few surprises for Harago and his crew. And it's like he's still having fun with this. He's like, Ah, I get to use all the stuff I've been trained to do. Um, the vermin are climbing and one group of ferrets finds a window only to be shoved off the mountain and into the open air by hares wielding poles Quitch goes to bully the horde on berating and shaming them the attack is focused on the seaward side with the hope Ferran could sneak in on the landward side an archer asks Farago if they should start firing but he says no it's too dim they'd be shooting their own folk Light more torches, climb higher, then try a shot or two. 
Sapwood, dressed in rags, is having a grand time slipping among the vermin, punching and kicking them off the mountain. He's just, he's, he, it, because he's dressed in rags and so it's got his ears mm-hmm. slicked back, he blends in really well with the rest of them. And mm-hmm. is just absolutely throwing vermin off the mountain, teaching them, you know, how to fly. Uh-huh. I like Sapwood. He's definitely one of my favorite hairs. He's super good. See, like if Brian wrote more hairs like Sapwood, I'd like them a lot more. Um, He started, like, Basil was almost like Sapwood, and then he got, like, character assassination in the second book, so... He got, um, he was, he got comfortable and fat. He got flanderized. Um, <laughs> this was stri- before flanderization was a thing, I think. Uh, well, yeah, the trope name, yes. Um, But for those who don't know, flanderization is a trope where all of a character's complexity is basically worn away until they only have one character trait. And Which so honestly, even flanderized. it from like Flanders from the Simpsons, but honestly, mm-hmm. even like in the Simpsons, like Ned Flanders doesn't get it that badly. Homer gets it worse. Yeah. Basically they just, they become a one note character. Whereas before they might've had a little more depth. Yeah. Um, but speaking of death, Earthstrike dumps Forge Oil on some boulders and, with a laugh, kicks them loose down the side of the mountain. A ferret hears it first, asking Klitsch what is that sound. He dismisses it, but quick as a flash, a rat is crushed, and as more vermin are crushed, their torches light the oil and turn the side of the mountain into a hellscape. They flee, and Farago dares one glance back to see the hellish sight. Above it all, Earthstripe laughs. Now the mountain looks like a volcano again, eh? <laughs> and then we get into the horrifying last oh, bit. Uh, Ron... We're gonna just... Blanket warning, this is not gonna be a very long section. But y'all have to know, this is where the poisoning happens. Yeah, and this it's book is not gonna be fun after this. Scary. Yeah, it's gonna get rough. Yep. Ron makes it over the crater and down into the mountain. He kills a startled wind paw with a poison dagger, then carries on until he finds the water barrels. Like, literally, he just barely pricks her neck and then she drops. Yeah. He poisons all ten, then carries on downward. He knows he's wasting time checking every room, but he must find the food. He reaches the dining room and knows the food must be close by. He finds food laid out for the morning and eats heartily. Like, he just, he washes his hands really thoroughly and then sits down and enjoys a leisurely meal, um, which is just as chilling. Like, he's like, ah, yes, I will enjoy this and then make sure no one else can. Um, Like, there's even a scene where, like, when he checks on the water barrels, like, he takes a sip of the water, like, appreciating the taste and the freshness of the water. Because it's, like, cool, like, cold rainwater and spring water. Mm -hmm. that's being stored in, like, these ten massive oak casks. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Oak ton casks is, I think, what they're described as. And it's just, Mm -hmm. like... And he poisons all of them. Yep. Once done, he heads for the pantry and completes his work with cold and evil skill. And it's like, um, like, I like Farhan. This is terrifying. Because, like, I think of... That comment of, I think it was Alfred Alfred Hitchcock, who was like, you can build suspense. Like, if the audience knows there's a bomb under the table, it's not the bomb going off that's important. It's the fact that you know the bomb is there, but the characters don't. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where the suspense comes from. We know the poison is there, but the hares don't. Like, we know that some of them are going to have to survive. It's not, he's not, ooh, sorry. <laughs> My throat went, no. Um, <laughs> he's not going to let, you know, Earthstripe die like this. Because it's like Earthstripe's going to have a warrior's death. So he's not going to get poisoned. But, you know, I, I'm dreading it, but I bet you it's Oxi who's going to eat some of the poison food. Or maybe, like, a nameless hair who's, like, given a name and then drops dead. But we will have to see. Um, so ending on that cliffhanger, it's time for questions. So what was your favorite weird Abbey food in this book? Spiced apple pudding. Yes. You know what? I wonder if there's like a recipe for that. I bet you it's like, like some kind of bread bullshit that they like to call. Probably. Spiced apple, spiced apple pudding, spiced apple pudding cake. Okay. Spiced apple dessert. Yeah, so it's like, again, like, it's not like a pudding like an American think would, would think of a pudding. It is like a baked thing, but it actually looks really good. I might it try this. It looks fucking decadent. Spiced apple sticky toffee pudding. I am opening that for later. Baked apple pudding. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have See, to come back and look I at some of these. I love toffee pudding so much. <laughs> There's somebody in town who makes it, and I lost their business card, and I'm so mad about it. Uh, Google. So good. Google it, Izzy. Maybe. I might. Okay. It's fine. Um, Was there an animal that appeared that surprised you, and did an animal subvert expectations? Not, I mean, Dumble kind of surprised me, but there weren't, it wasn't like, eh, it was eh, and nothing really subverted expectations, but I did, like, really like uh Ferran like he was yes he wasn't surprising but he was unexpected Mm -hmm. Uh, because like he's still playing on that trope of the foxes being like herbalists but instead of being an herbalist who heals he's an herbalist who kills yeah which is an important like I I think I remember reading somewhere that like you have to know poison to cure diseases because what you're doing is you're killing the disease quicker than the poison kills you basically um so yeah i'd say i also was a little surprised by spurgett's abrupt appearance but like i (laughs) like his character i'm definitely enjoying him and the hair not the hairs the rabbits like rabbits actually appearing like brian's like fine have a rabbit there you go the rabbits fucking surprised me (laughs) fucking rabbits rabbits. they are real (laughs) they're there they are not a mythological creature (laughs) <laughs> holy fucking um, shit because like for a little while there it was kind of like gen 1 pokemon where it's like pikachu's a mouse pokemon all right how do they know what mouse what the mice fuck are is a mouse yeah um or what the, the fish is a in rabbit. misty's gym yeah um let's see what's your favorite part so far that last bit yeah like the way he writes for ron just like going about his business is just like nice spooky terrifying what a good cliffhanger I'm actually excited to read the next part and record again. <laughs> and so we didn't get any questions from anybody this go around, but we did have some nope. asks happen on our Tumblr. Yeah. Um, so the first one was talking about uh, f- female vermin. Anonymous asked us, 
Your comments on how there's so few female vermin got me thinking. It's almost like they're Vikings in the historical sense, largely roaming raiding parties of disenfranchised young men, leaving the overpopulated north in search of lands and riches in the more prosperous southern lands. Uh, take that and tell it through a medieval Christian lens and you've got the vermin in many of these books. Uh-huh. And I have uh, brought and, this up before, too. Yeah, we've brought it up before and mm -hmm. it's still like a very interesting take and both like Honestly, I want more vermin culture. I wish we got mm -hmm. more, like, actual vermin culture. Um, you mentioned that they're Vikings with half of the culture chopped off. This like, point. literally. Yeah, because, like, we, it's, we're, we're getting Vikingers, but without their homeland. Yeah. Because, you know, so much of, like, what made a Vikinger a Vikinger was the people they wanted to go home to. Because, like, like they mentioned, a lot of them were disenfranchised young men who wanted to make money. But they wanted to make money so they could go home and buy farmland. Like, mm -hmm. they wanted to have enough money where they could go home and buy a more stable living. Where, Which is like, I've complained about this in earlier books, where it's like, these vermin want treasure and they want riches. Why do they want them? What is the motivation here? Do they have to a have. place where they can go back and, like, spend that? Why would no, they spend it? it's just to have. Yeah, like, Brian pretty much takes them and just turns them into dragons. You know, yeah. they just want to And not it. in a fun way. Like, not in a fun way. These aren't fun dragons. These are no. badly written. And then yeah. we got another anonymous ask. Uh, on the subject of all the blood, <laughs> if yeah. the Netflix movie slash series ever is actually made, because, you know, Netflix has been gutting their animation department. God. Do you think they'd have even a fraction of all the blood and body horror in this series? And I responded to this like, do we know what the rating is yet? Because I don't think we do. There's really yeah. not a lot of information out about the Redwall movie. Um, like, if we're talking Netflix, they're a little more willing to toe the line. Like, um, it depends on what you said, the rating. What age demographic are they going for? Are, I, like, are we going to get something like Centaur World? Are we going to get something like Watership Down? Oh, like, uh, I think it's going to be something more along the lines of Guardians of Gahul because that exactly. did have blood in it. Um, there, it wasn't it wasn't squeamish about the blood, but it wasn't like fucking carnage. Like, if you could say blood is like was tastefully done, I'd say we'd be more likely to get tastefully done blood. Yeah. Because there's a lot of, like, Redwall books are war books. There's a mm -hmm. huge battle in most of them. And in war movies, they don't shy away from showing the fucking carnage that, exactly. that happens. But in Redwall books, we don't really linger on it. So I don't it's, think in the Netflix adaption, we're going to linger on it. It's like I'm a little sad because, like, I haven't actually watched the Redwall show but part of me really wishes that we could have gotten a Redwall movie in the style of Watership Down. Because I feel like that specifically British animation style, that really pretty watercolor that was popular for like a few years, like a mm -hmm. decade or so. I'd really like to see that, which is like, it makes me sad because I would like to see a Redwall movie. But I feel like if they could get that British style of animation, that would be better. Then you know what I know we would get instead, which if it was 2D animated, it would be like probably puppets and you know things along those lines. Which puppet animation has gotten much much better, mm -hmm. but I'd still love. It just can't quite get that watercolor feeling you get from some of like the 80s animation. We would get 80s late, you know, early 90s 
um, from that era. Yeah. But I would agree with you. We'd probably get something more along PG, PG-13 where there's a little bit of blood, but you're not going to see any viscera or like blood sprays. We're not talking like uh, gritty anime blood sprays or anything like that. Or even Watership Down, where, like, the rabbits would have blood and foam on their teeth and mouth as they fought with each other. You'd see them scratching each other. Yeah. Good movie. Very traumatizing. <laughs> Do not show it to your kids. Don't. <laughs> Do not. Wait until they're at least 10 or 11 or 12. Preferably 12. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful you lent us your ears, and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. As usual, this has been Kit fumbling over her words. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Kitsy in a Box. Uh, I am making, I do commissions. I do adoptables and custom adoptables, little critters called Kitsunday. Uh, yeah. Frolics. Alka Frolics, which are alcohol-themed deer. I can do actual alcoholic drinks or... Uh, non-alcoholic drinks. I they they don't they don't have any rules unlike the kids and they do. I just do them for fun, so they don't have any rules. If you throw a drink at me and pay me money, I'll draw you a deer with an alcoholic bend. <laughs> Got into um, the uh, fall apples, huh? Ah <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and this has been Izzy. You can find me on Twitter at the Sean Deer. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Uh, you can find the other podcast I'm on at Hope's Hearth Pod, which is a Solar Hope Punk actual play podcast. Uh, and shortly after, either right before this bit of this episode comes out or right after, should be when the Pod Jam episodes are coming out for One Mic Stand, which is a podcast pilot making <laughs> uh, jam that Riley and Andrew from the Podcast Minds of Moonshot Network were putting on. I am part of that uh, with my podcast partner, Manny, and uh, you should go and listen to our podcast pilot on there. Um, and it'll probably end up on the Hope's Hearth feed at some point as well. Uh, it's called uh, Colchis. Colchis. All you right. listen to it. It's going to be good. And with that... May your hearth be warm and your heart be merry from us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. 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 Clap at uh, the... Minute. Yeah.
Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, please consider donating to our coffee, linked in the description below. Follow our Twitter and Tumblr at Abbey Archives and join our Discord. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave, and some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout inspired audio drama. <laughs>